Welcome to Cyber Authentication and Access Strategies in Government, sponsored by Duo Security. Now here's your host, Tom Tamman. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Ron Butra, the Chief Technology Officer at the Justice Department. Greg Crabb is Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Postal Service. Sean Frazier is Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Federal at Duo Security. Paul Grassi is Partner and Senior Vice President for Cybersecurity at Easy Dynamics Corporation. And Steve Wallace is Technical Director of the Development and Business Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. And our topic today is authentication. And I want to make an analogy. About a century ago, train cars were hooked together with something called a Lincoln pin. Two links came together, somebody dropped a pin in. It held the train cars together, but it had the effect of chopping off a lot of arms and, and hands and fingers. So they decided they needed a better system to couple railroad cars. That's kind of where we are with authentication. We've got passwords, even two-factor, but yet cybersecurity problems persist. So I guess why don't we begin by starting from the government's point of view. What's the case for updating our ways of authenticating users and entities on our networks? And Ron, why don't we start with you? So our users have increased expectations. If you look at the advances in technology, they are going to have a desire to make sure that they have better accessibility to their to their data, to their applications, and enhanced mobility for, for that access. Uh, and our cyber threats have not, ha have not decreased. They are ad advancing at an unbelievable clip. And if you take a look at our authentication technology, they have grown organically, independently, across our components. Uh, so today, we have to take a, a more holistic strategy to have an intentful purpose that we are addressing these needs moving forward. So the users want the single factor and ease here, even as the cyber challenges get tougher, is, is, is how you're putting it? If uh, the accessibility of IT through our, 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 the applications that they're using at, at their home becomes easier than what we're doing at work, their expectations is, is why aren't we trending in that direction? We have a responsibility to protect our assets, to protect citizen data, to protect our, our, our workforce. But at the same token, their expectations is, is that the ease mimics the type of services they have at home. Okay, Craig? From the Postal Service's perspective, we have uh, our employees who we need to enable to be able to conduct their business on in an efficient and effective manner for the organization. We also have uh, uh, authentication issues that relate to our business partners and how we transact business to support uh, all of those entities that want to ship and mail with the Postal Service and then our customers, uh, you the citizens of the country, want convenient, reliable uh, access to the information that the Postal Service has about the services that we provide for, to you. In order to do that in an easy and convenient manner, we have to uh, address the threats that exist from a cyber attack perspective. And uh, it's, uh, we don't want to burden our users with understanding the challenges that those attacks make on the organization and our employees and customers but we want to provide simple, reliable access to our services. I was thinking the Postal Service has that wonderful application, digital service really, where people can view their mail ahead of time before it comes in. I imagine the threat there, the potential, is really big if someone were to get someone else's mail access. The, the uh, opportunity for identity theft and, and physical theft would, would really increase. We take uh, the security of our customers' uh, information extremely seriously and uh, as a result have aligned uh, our practices from an identity and access management perspective with the NIST guidance uh, and uh, gone through FICAM certification for the identity and access management protocols that we put around informed delivery. Uh, to enable our customers to have easy access to uh, to that service. Sure, and Steve, at DISA, pretty much it's a all government and maybe industry access, not so much the public, but yet you've got some serious authentication challenges. Yes, yeah, so the, years ago, the DOD made the move to the common access card, which changed the dynamic away from passwords to, to multi-factor auth. 
the problem has been now that we're evolving from the endpoints that we're using. We're not using desktops anymore. Uh, and, and even back then, we had to get card readers deployed and that type of thing. But you're, you're not going to find a card reader on a mobile device. We tried that with the sleds years ago, and it was cumbersome. Mm -hmm. Didn't work very well. So we're needing to evolve beyond uh, you know, just the form factor that is the desktop and the PC to something that is more mobile and, and more usable. Furthermore, we also realize the fact that that's not the complete end state either. Uh, we need to use some of the other factors that surround the users, potentially the sensors that are on those devices, and leverage those sensors to build a profile about that user and then use that as other factors of authentication to, to move them along and, and bring them into the system. Okay, let's turn to industry. Uh, Sean, are you seeing this, this same phenomenon that the move to mobility is helping to drive updating authentication? Absolutely, I, th I think Ron hit on it. There are basically kind of three tectonic things that are happening in the industry right now um, that are affecting enterprise in general and certainly public sector as well. I mean, one is cloud. Everything's moving to cloud. The, the network is, the, the perimeter's kind of dissolving away. Everything's moving to, to networks that you trust and don't trust. Mobile's a big part of that. All your endpoints are becoming mobile. I mean, one would argue that everything is mobile, even Windows and things that we traditionally have thought as being a desktop or a laptop all ends up being mobile. And the third thing that Ron hit on is user expectation, right? So everything has to be user-centric, and we can kind of thank or blame Apple for some of this, where they made security easier and more accessible from for users, but still making it strong. So there's a really high bar on usability for all this stuff. So what are people looking for? I think what, what you see across a lot of domains. I think what they're looking for is they're looking for something where they can protect what they really care about, which is the endpoint user and the data. So the endpoint could be the user, the endpoint could be the application, but you can't necessarily know or trust the network that you ride on, right? Because you could be sitting at the Starbucks across the street doing the same amount of work that you'd be doing sitting inside a base or sitting inside your office. The same thing you'd be doing if you're sitting in an airport or even as I was yesterday on an airplane, doing work sitting on an airplane. So you don't know where you're going to be accessing these things from, and it's going to be that mobile device. So it's important to protect that user's identity because that really becomes the endpoint. Because some, even some large and sophisticated organizations do not let employees use Wi-Fi in public places, even now, no matter what kind of VPN they might have, that's still kind of something they don't do. And yeah, you can't stop progress. People will do what people want to do. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, Paul, what are you, what are you seeing? Well, um, I think we've got some good news here, um, and then I'll get into a few of the issues. I mean, the good news is now people are finally aware that two-factor authentication and and stronger authentication is a good thing. Um, you know, even three, four years ago, my mother wouldn't be able to tell me what two-factor or multi-factor is, and, and now she can. Um, however, we've sort of made things worse. Um, instead of um, everyone having a different username and password, now everyone has a different username, password, and a second factor. Um, and if it's a second factor that might not be on your person, you are going to stop your transaction and, and move on to something else, which could have a, a commerce effect as well. Um, we still have technologies out there that are being used that are fishable, that are susceptible to malware, that are uh, putting the secrets on the server, um, which all creates the ability for a remote scalable attack. Um, at NIST, when, when we were writing the 863 guidelines that Greg talked about, um, we weren't after perfect security. That's not going to happen. We were after um, uh, thwarting that remote scalable attack. So if it's targeted and costly, that's much better than, than, than cheap and scalable. Um, so, you know, one of the areas that I think we can focus on, whether it's in, in the enterprise use case or even in the citizen co or, or commercial use cases, we've got to get over issuing something that we, we, the organization, are in love with and we, the organization, think we have to manage. Um, we need, just like we need BYOD, we need bring your own authenticator. Um, there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, uh, the first being usability, I'm using what I want to use, not what you're forcing me to use. Obviously within some parameters, we don't want to bring insecure solutions to us. And if I'm working with an organization uh, that I only access their online service you know, once a year, twice a year, if I'm using what I use every day, then I'm not gonna forget it and have to trigger that call center call. Mm -hmm. Forgot my password, forgot this, forgot that. Because I use it every day in my life and now just once a year I'm gonna use it this other place. Well, that idea of bring your own authentication, how does that ring with the government? Because that's a phrase I haven't heard, to be honest. Ron? So, I don't think that's a, uh, a pure avenue that we're looking at. Now, we, we've got within the department a larger uh, ICAM strategy. And as part of, as part of that, we, 
this it's an important it's important to note that we've got to think about uh, a holistic approach, it, just like we we're talking about this user experience. Um, but I I think right now, from our standpoint, we're driving towards an enterprise digital identifier, and that that identity is is a one-stop shop to make sure that we've got an author authoritative record across the department that everyone can can index off of. Um, so when, once we start saying that you're going to bring your own identity, we, we still have to have that master record uh, that we can go to. And that's got to be one of the, the first pieces that I believe departments have to go after, as opposed to looking at additional mm -hmm. uh, bring your own devices. And I'm not saying that the authentication pieces aren't important. I actually think that the new OMB draft guidance that's out has uh, nice uh, nice words towards how we need to look at it, and and I think those communities of interest are important for us to consider. Because at one time, uh, for several years, the NIST had a unit that was looking at new ways of authentication that can be universally deployed and so forth, maybe driving toward that idea that people have an authenticator that could be used in many contexts. Uh, Greg, is that something you're thinking about? Absolutely. You have to be very selective in the approaches to authentication that you make. And in, in the area of bring your own authenticator, we're looking to expand our ability to allow small and medium-sized businesses to print postage. And uh, we've been in discussions with uh, postage meter manufacturers to allow uh, uh, small and medium-sized businesses to bring their own authenticator to be able to access the systems and pay for postage and transact business with the Postal Service. So in that context, that specific solution is very important to the growth of the U.S. Postal Service. Interesting. How, how does that play against standards, the idea of of everyone having a different type of authentication that could be accepted by an organization. because I really want to pull on that idea because that's another one I, I hadn't heard. For, from a standards perspective, there are uh, protocols that have been established to help in the exchange of uh, tokens across organizations. Uh, SAML is one of those protocols that is leveraged in that uh, framework to be able to enable that from a business perspective. Steve, how mature do you think some of these things are at this point? So, uh, SAML, for instance, is is fairly mature. It's been around for what ten plus years. So, it, it's it's heavily used out in industry. We still have some concerns about the you know the way that it's implemented and some of the profiles that surround it. Um, but we do use it in a variety of applications that we have. Okay, so I guess then the question is, if it's been around ten years, passwords have been around forever, but yet. We still have cybersecurity issues. Sean, what, what is the state of the art looking like? Uh, so I, I agree with Paul. I think there's some good news here. Part of the good news is, is he and his team did a really good job of kind of separating these things out. And there's actually, as part of 63.3, there's a, there's a whole section on federation. So federation is where SAML and OAuth live. And it's very important if you look at what Ron and Greg have been talking about. You know, I own my identity, but I have a persona with inside my organization. My organization knows me better than my partner organization, so why doesn't my partner organization trust my organization, which is the, the concept of federation. So there's some good news that, that there is some good guidance there, but there's still a lot of work to be done. As Steve points out, um, a lot of agencies don't necessarily trust it yet. The whole relying party tokenization of SAML is still not necessarily a trusted mechanism. Um, that has to happen. Um, I, I believe that that is kind of the path forward for all of this stuff. Um, so I think it's going to be important as those standards get adopted. There are other standards we'll talk about like FIDO and some of these other things that are really going to be helping on the endpoint side. Yeah, so how does all this get translated into practical system development? Because a lot of agencies are moderate, uh, modernizing. And so this is the opportunity to build in some of the back-end, I guess, connectors that they would need yeah. to these, these technologies. I think one of the mistakes we made, at least on the federal enterprise side, and and this goes way back in time, is we, we, we picked uh, an authenticator, we picked a winner, we picked a smart card form factor, and we picked PKI as the authenticator. And, and those are very secure technologies, and they work great. Um, but we also picked them to be the, the vehicle for exchanging attributes. We picked it for the vehicle to be kind of the federated protocol. It's not, PKI is not really that good at that, in my, my opinion. DOD's had some success there, um, but in, in the federal government writ large, we haven't seen that direct PKI enablement work. Um, so we need to start leaning on the SAMLs and the OpenID Connects, um, and we need to pull away from saying, 
um, the interoperability has to happen at the authenticator level um, and start saying, you know, move that interoperability up a little bit so that the authenticators can be, um, uh, there can be multiple used as long as they have the security characteristics that we care about. Now, again, in the enterprise use case, we want to control that a little bit more than we would in the consumer case. Um, but, you know, on that consumer side, on that citizen side, we're seeing Google, you know, say, you know, enroll your own authenticator. And oh, by the way, we've done the research. This authenticator, this FIDO thing, is the most secure thing out there. We're using it in the enterprise. We're moving all of our admins to it for, um, uh, you know, the Google um, uh, suite for, for yeah, thank you, the G Suite. Um, and, and we're pushing our, we are now pushing our consumers who we didn't want to create friction mm -hmm. for to these technologies. Um, so if Google's doing it, why aren't we? And the Hill is even saying, hey, um, agency X that's working with the citizens, throw up a FIDO server and let them enroll their, their key. Because it's better than the username and password and SMS that you're issuing right now. Yeah, so that really indicates then or implies a whole different architecture to begin with because Google does not have the same mainframe or even client-server architecture that you find still in legacy systems throughout the government. No, um, but, but Google is also not, uh, well, I, I can't speak for what Google's doing internally, but they're likely not pushing, we'll continue with FIDO as, as one of the examples, they're probably not pushing that FIDO protocol all the way down to their internal systems. They're, 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 they're authenticating FIDO at the edge. Um, that's the recommended architecture that I would make. And then they're federating from that point on. Um, in which case SAML and OpenID Connect are in play. Mainframes aren't going to speak that, but in a modernized right. architecture, um, they better. Um, I would throw you out if you, if you weren't at least SAML, let alone OpenID Connect. Luckily, luckily, Paul doesn't have to speak for Google. They wrote a paper about this, several <laughs> papers. So if you look yeah. at the Beyondcore paper from 2011, they, before they started this journey, they said, look, this is what we're going to do. This is going to have to, how we're going to do identity and access management for our organization. They updated as they went through it because, of course, Google's full of PhDs, so they, that's all they do. Their IT people write papers. They wrote another paper in 2014 saying this wasn't as easy as we thought, even being Google, mm -hmm. with all the money in the world, with all the ability to make change in the world that public you know, uh, agencies don't have to do. It was still hard for them. It's still a journey. Okay, we need to take a break on that note, and we'll come back to some of these issues. Our guests today are Ron Butra. He's Chief Technology Officer at the Justice Department. Greg Crabb is Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Postal Service. Sean Frazier, Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Federal at Duo Security. Paul Grassi is Partner and Senior Vice President for Cybersecurity at Easy Dynamics Corporation. And Steve Wallace is Tech Technical Director of the Development and Business Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. Our panel discussion is Cyber Authentication and Access Strategies for Government. Sponsored by Duo Security here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. At Duo Security, they understand IT modernization doesn't happen in a day or a week or a month. It's a journey. Cloud and mobility have accelerated that journey, creating the need for strong authentication that gives your users simple and effective secure access to applications from any device, anywhere. Duo helps you embrace zero-trust security by granting secure connections to any application based on user and endpoint trust, not access cards. Duo, security for your IT modernization journey. Learn more at duo.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Cyber Authentication and Access Strategies for Government, sponsored by Duo Security, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Steve Wallace, Technical Director of the Development and Business Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. Paul Grassi is Partner and Senior Vice President for Cybersecurity at Easy Dynamics Corporation. Sean Frazier is Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Federal at Duo Security. Greg Crabb is Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Postal Service. And Ron Butra is Chief Technology Officer at the Justice Department. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And before the break, we were talking about a lot of distinct and discrete technologies. The Fast ID Online, FIDO, the Security Assertion Markup Language, SAML, OpenID Connect, and a lot of acronyms floating around. I guess at a little higher level than the, than the coding behind these things. Sean, maybe tell us what some of these things mean for federal practitioners and what federal managers concerned with authentication and ultimately cybersecurity should know about these things and how they affect them as they go forward with modernizing and updating and replacement efforts. Sure. 
I think there's kind of two overarching things that we're all trying to do. We're trying to provide the best security for identity possible while making it easier for end users to use. At the end of the day, that's really the only thing that matters. All of these technologies are really a means to an end to get there. So we talk about FIDO, which is an open source alliance um, for uh, endpoint authentication. Um, there are some pieces and parts that we talked about, WebAuthN, which is another kind of PKI-based system that, to eliminate passwords, um, which is a lot more elegant than most PKI systems that exist today. But at the end of the day, the, the goal is to make it secure and easy. Yeah, so in other words, the, the complexity is at the back end more so maybe than in the past because it's more simplicity at the front end. It has to be. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that, that you know, from a user perspective, again, we, we've all kind of, it's a high bar, we've all trained to have things be easy. You look at Face ID and Touch ID, good examples. Yeah. Paul? Um, you know, the federal manager question specifically, um, that breaks down into three or four or five different buckets. You know, you've got the, the, the federal PIV CAC population, um, FIDO isn't going to impact them, they're getting smart cards. However, um, in the drive space, the drive PIV, what some of the stuff DOD is doing with, uh, you know, looking at the warfighter and additional ways to authenticate. For mobile authentication. For mobile. FIDO is, that's FIDO's sweet spot. And the new OMB memo um, that's in draft uh, supports that. Um, you've got a, a significant population that doesn't fall under the coverage of PIV and CAC for whatever reason. Um, we should be giving them something better than usernames and passwords. Um, so why not give a FIDO or some other type of credential that has those same security characteristics as the smart card? Citizens, we've talked about, right? And we've, we've heard that the Hill is saying, stand up these servers so citizens can use these things. And then we've got partners as well. You know, we, we don't talk about our business partners a lot. Um, how are they logging in? Hopefully they're federating, um, but if they're not, um, maybe if, you know, if we had a Google to government uh, transaction, not to continue to pick on Google, why not let that Google uh, employee use that key, security key that's FIDO based to access a government system to, con you know, to transact? Way better than what's probably going on today. And it doesn't have to be all FIDO, but those, there's, there's way more areas for federal managers than just you know, this enterprise employee PIV card use case. Sure, Steve? It's so, so I absolutely agree with what both of these gentlemen have said. Uh, we have to get, uh, we have to make the security more transparent for the end user, right? If, if we make it difficult, they will inevitably find a way to get their jobs done regardless of what we do, right? Um, so that's always one of the challenges that we have to have, it, or that we have to deal with. Uh, in addition to that, as we start to move towards more software as a service and and PaaS and, and those types of things, start to outsource some of that that compute and those applications. Uh, that's what these providers are already using. So with respect to how we do things in the DoD and DISA, and as well as the DoD, uh, we have to start to get more comfortable with these technologies like FIDO. And we, we are working with the FIDO Alliance to, to better integrate some of the work that we're doing. Uh, and then also to work with the cloud providers and how they're deploying SAML and OAuth and OpenID uh, and making sure that we're doing it right. There's uh, a SAML isn't a singular type of technology. It's a, a, a it's a banner, if you will, and there are a variety of profiles, and every vendor implements those profiles a little bit differently. And, and that would be one thing that I would encourage folks that as they're starting to look at these technologies, understand the profiles that are being used and how the vendor is implementing them, because you might think that you're authenticating in a certain way, but the reality is it, it may be a little less than you might be getting a little less than what you think in the end. Sure, and Greg, how might that uh, translate over to postal service when you have all these different partners that you work with? You, in some ways, you have a problem similar to U.S. Transcom, which you know is mostly dependent on private sector carriers and truckers for what they do, and even in wartime, they would depend on them, and they worry about what their cyber posture is. That is, Transcom worries about what the partner's uh, cyber is because you know an order for transport of ordnance could go to a small trucking company that may lose that order into cyberspace somehow. As the Postal Service interacts with our communities, obviously we're interacting with a lot of uh, businesses across the United States and consumers. And so to make the technologies easy for uh, the, the services of the Postal Service to be accessible through those online mechanisms, it's critically important for us to leverage these technologies. And uh, to the point of allowing uh, organizations to bring their own uh, identity to the table is exactly what we need to do in order to be able to extend out to these communities. And obviously we have to factor in uh, the third-party risk 
that uh, we need to consider uh, in providing solutions to to my ecosystem. Sure. Ron? So uh, raising this up a, a, a level, I think the technology itself is important for both uh, our IT professionals, technologists, and, and honestly, uh, our cybersecurity professionals to understand. But uh, there, we, we had mentioned the OMB draft memo that was out, and what's nice about it is that it is a, a really good framework for digital identity services and for, for managers and, and, and people who are interested in it, they, it. That document's out for draft now, and, it, and everyone should be getting their comments in. It provides a good introduction about how we should be approaching a lot of these services. Whether whether you're referencing the 863, if you're going out and looking at uh, how you're going to make this all interoperable and building out that strategy, uh, and I think it's it's important to be thinking about all these technologies as enablers, as tools, and where is that appropriate use? But it has to fit into a bigger framework. The tools themselves aren't, aren't going to solve it. Yeah, I wanted to ask about NIST guidance because NIST is pretty much Johnny on the spot when it comes to you know, being update, uh, updating, uh, updating its own guidance for a variety of cybersecurity. And if you've read some of those 800 series special publications, they're pretty good. They're actually understandable. <laughs> I know, and Paul, you, you had something to do with some of those. In fact, I think we've talked over the years from your NIST standpoint, because we have, when there's a new draft come out, we, we talk to those people. So uh, how can NIST guidance be brought in in a practical way by agencies such that, that they can understand these technologies and have a way of talking to vendors about actually acquiring them? Sure, I, I can only talk, you know, now that I'm, I've left government, you know, the the, things that we were doing um, specifically in digital identity um, and, and bringing agencies into the mix. Um, you know, the, we, we open sourced the development of, of 863. We, we put it out there in GitHub um, and we asked industry and, and government uh, to participate in the writing of it. Uh, we barely had a, a, a blank sheet of paper uh, and, and, and we had put it out there. And that had some mixed results, mostly because it was a new process. Some agencies blocked GitHub. Um, some agencies and organizations didn't believe that we were actually going to do it, and we did it. They were <laughs> they were shocked and didn't know what to do. Uh, but we had you know we we had that thing out there in the public for for over a year, which is a little bit different model than than typical um, publication drafts that you know you don't really see until they come out for draft. You have 60 days, and then and then they typically go final. Um, the other thing we did was we we really treated ourselves as consultants to the agencies, and we said, um, we're not implementing, you are. So this is unimplementable, then, then we got it wrong. Um, so what are you seeing in the field? What are you seeing with your users? Uh, uh, how can we help um, implement so we can take those lessons, learn back? Um, what can we do in the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence to um, feed innovation into the standards process rather than the reverse? Um, and that had a lot of success in, in, in the digital identity space. Yeah, implementation is really everything. And Steve, I wanted to ask you from the DISA standpoint as an operator of the mega centers for many, many years, and then as the lead DOD agency on cloud, uh, you've got very different architectures uh, to deploy to the users and to DISA itself to you know the different DOD agencies. And yet, uh, so that, that presents a real imp implementation challenge, I think, for some of these technologies because of the differing architectures, how do you see all that happening? Absolutely, so um, we work very closely with industry to understand where they're trying to go and, and how we can possibly get there. Um, and to the comments that we made before about the use of SAML and OpenID and FIDO, uh, it's important for us to early get a grasp on how those technologies work. Specific now, in the now it's FIDO, right? But uh, you know, in the past we've worked with some of those other ones. Um, and as we move towards uh, software as a service, PaaS, IaaS, those types of things, those vendors already have mature offerings in those spaces. So we need to understand how those work and how we adapt what we're doing to that. Um, we have a very mature uh, PKI at this point, um, but how do we get that to work with 
a lot of what the vendors are doing. What we've uh, probably what we've had to learn the hardest is that we were we had our ways of doing things and the ways that we were comfortable with. And then as we'd start to work with these companies, we would say, well, you need to do it this way. And and then there would be a back and a forth and a debate over, well, no, this is actually how we do it. And, and we'd sit down and we'd work it out and understand. In a lot of cases, they were doing things that that we really appreciated the way that they were doing them and and uh, the the means to the end. Um, so we've had to adopt and then also we've worked with them to have them change some of the ways that they're doing things and thus far it's gone pretty well. Yeah, so Sean, are these cybersecurity services and authentication services, are the, well that's the question, are they, should they be products that people buy and install or in the case of cloud computing, should they be among the stack of services that the cloud provider offers? and people include in their in their uh, service level agreements. So I think, and Ron brought this up a little bit, you know, it's not just a, a technology problem, and it never is. Even with the OMB guidance and, and the things that we've seen, there are some, there, there's always kind of people process and technology. So there's some people call outs and stakeholders in some of this guidance. There's some technology things. There's also some process that, that agencies are going to have to do in order to do this. There is some work that has to be done by the agency in order to facilitate this. I think the thing from my perspective is, is this whole thing looks like a kind of a private-public partnership. And, and you know, back in the day, and I'm going to show my age a little bit, when I worked at a small company called Netscape, we would always take information to W3C, we would then help that be adopted, and then that would inform our product. And I think that that's the way this happens, because the open standards is really where we all meet at the end of the day. Yeah, it took us 25 years to get the S on HTTP finally, so <laughs> pretty common. So it, progress does eventually happen, yeah, eventually. even if it was beyond the Netscape era. And uh, I guess I'll translate that question for Greg. How, what do you expect from vendors and where do you want to place the responsibility for products and services and performance, really, of I, these, these uh, authentication technologies? So f for the postal service, it's not necessarily about delivering authentication, authentication technology. It's how does the technology interoperate with the services that we provide to the public? And <clears throat> making those technologies easy for our employees to use and for our customers to interact with. Uh, the, po the mission of the postal service is very simple and uh, our customers expect the perfect package experience. We're going to deliver 60, uh, or about six billion packages this uh, fiscal year. And uh, in order to be able to uh, collect the information that's necessary in order for that customer to know that uh, their package is going to be to them on time, that interacts with at least 17 scan events, which are uh, collected through technology and all of our employees uh, interact with that technology. So for us, it's not about uh, what are the technologies that we integrate. It's about making it easy for our employees and customers to be able to, to interact with our organization. And uh, yeah, so, okay, just to pull on that thread a little bit, if you are using a cloud provider, uh, you expect them just to be able to affect that to have that happen, the authentication, and you don't want to really worry about it. Absolutely. So whether it's uh, the the folks in my data center that uh, help manage the cloud implementation, or whether it's the customers uh, that are interacting with that data, they just expect it to happen, and uh, we we want to make those uh, interactions seamless for our user communities. Ron, your thoughts? So, as the cyber challenges have advanced, uh, so has this technology space. Uh, it's it, it's been it's rapidly becoming a um, uh, a a series of different technologies that have their own ecosystems that have a lot of different uh, types of technology that are interoperable. Which protocols we're going to use? I I don't think. Um, the problem space has made it easy for the vendors or the consumers to help define this or make this easier. So when you're turning around and you ask about cloud or mobility, um, I think there's a lot of good work that's happening. We've got to think of it as more of a framework than a single point, point solution that's going to solve it. Um, there are technologies out there or services out there, for example, uh, the login.gov service could be used for a lot of citizen-facing services. But what, are you, what can you do with these third 
third-party verification systems. When you're going out to the cloud, how do we bring those things together and when do we use which service? Uh, we have to be looking at this more as a strategy and from our standpoint, it's not uh, within the department. I, I, I think we are seeing a lot of positive movement in how we're, we're building that, uh, and I referenced this before, an electronic digital I, I identity. And then what we're trying to do is make sure that we have the right framework to allow for different technologies on the front end. All right, on that note, we will take a break and come right back and continue. Our guests today are Ron Butcher, Chief Technology Officer at the Justice Department. Greg Crabb is Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Postal Service. Sean Frazier is Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Federal at Duo Security. Paul Grassi is partner and senior vice president for cybersecurity at Easy Dynamics Corporation. Steve Wallace is the technical director of the Development and Business Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This panel discussion is Cyber Authentication and Access Strategies in Government, sponsored by Duo Security, here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. At Duo Security, they understand IT modernization doesn't happen in a day or a week or a month. It's a journey. Cloud and mobility have accelerated that journey, creating the need for strong authentication that gives your users simple and effective secure access to applications from any device, anywhere. Duo helps you embrace zero-trust security by granting secure connections to any application based on user and endpoint trust, not access cards. Duo, security for your IT modernization journey. Learn more at duo.com. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Cyber Authentication and Access Strategies in Government, sponsored by Duo Securities here on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. My guests today are Paul Grassi, Partner and Senior Vice President for Cybersecurity at Easy Dynamics Corporation. Steve Wallace is Technical Director of the Development and Business Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. Ron Butra is Chief Technology Officer at the Justice Department. Greg Crabb, Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Postal Service, and Sean Frazier, Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Federal at Duo Security. And Steve, why don't we start with you with the question of what the actual authenticating factors are that we've been talking about. We've mentioned a lot about the password, of course that needs to go away, I guess. And then the other factor common for most applications is that six digit number that comes to your token or your smartphone. But what else? I mean, wh sure. where are we headed here? So for years, the, the DOD moved to two-factor auth using the smart card, and we call it the common access card. Uh, we've had the common access card for a number of years, but we, we realized we need to move beyond that given, the as I mentioned before, the move to mobility and, and some of these other form factors that don't necessarily support that. Um, so about two years ago, we launched a program called Purebred, which allowed us to put derived credentials, they're derived from the same credentials that are on the common access card, on the mobile devices, and we support all the major mobile platforms now, uh, and we have uh, over 10,000 uh, devices enrolled in the system. Uh, but that allows us to use the credential uh, on the mobile devices with other applications. But then beyond that, we've broken the problem into two halves, if you will. The, the credential that's used to prove as you move around the network, which is those certificates that we discussed. Uh, but then also, how does the user prove themselves to the device? Uh, so those devices, specifically in the mobile area, are rich with sensors, right? You've got gyroscopes, you've got barometers, you've got you know GPS, uh, all types of things. How can we better leverage those? And microphones, yes. Uh, but how can you better leverage those to prove the who has that actual device? Uh, we have a few pilots going on right now. Um, one is, is more desktop oriented, but we're looking at the behavior of the user and how they interact with the keyboard and the mouse and, and building a profile of that user and then constantly comparing that interaction against that known good profile to see who's doing what. Or is it, did I share my credential with you or, or vice versa? Mm -hmm. um, so we're doing that, and then we're working with a chipset vendor right now to get some integration down at the chipset level uh, to use those sensors in a trusted manner on the device, not relying on the operating system, but at a deeper level to leverage those sensors to better prove your identity to that device. Well, a couple of questions then. So with the derived credential, the device can be known to the network. Right. The device has to be known to the user, otherwise it won't be known to the network. Is that kind of a basic 
logic. Yes, there? the 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 credential has to be. It's 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 the it's effectively taking that chip that you see on the smart card or the common access card, and, and the credentials that are on that chip and, and embedding them onto the device. And we're also working with when I mentioned the work with the chipset vendors to do better attestation and control of those certificates, basically taking that same technology that's on the card and putting that into the mobile devices to more strongly uh, maintain the control of those. And just from certs. an industrial standpoint, do you envision the device makers putting those types of chips universally in their devices? That's the only way it would seem to be economical. Absolutely. So the work that we're doing, it, the intent is is to fold it in. Now, whether the device manufacturers license that capability in that chipset or not, that's that's up to them. And, and we're working with manufacturers and all the way down through the operating system vendors. Um, but the idea is to have it more universal and, and be able to leverage because we don't want one-offs. We don't want the, the next SMEPED. Uh, we want things that are commercially viable. I think that's why FIDO is interesting to all of us is that You've got chipset manufacturers, mobile handset manufacturers, um, the the major SaaS software vendors all participating there. So you'd all be surprised at the level of secure technology we're already walking around with. Um, and, and in that case, um, you know, there, there's a couple options. You can take that certificate off the uh, common access card embedded on the phone, or you can leverage that, that protocol, um, the FIDO protocol, which will create the key on the phone and link back to that cert. Um, so there's there's a lot of ways to skin this cat and have that same sure. level of security and, and use what we are already carrying around. Yeah, and uh, Steve referenced behavioral dynamics that might affect whether something is authenticated, like such as how they interact with the keyboard. Uh, Ron, I'm wondering if maybe another behavior such as the person's location could be used. Hey, wait, we didn't know they were in Russia, you know, or or maybe zones could be whitelisted where people can operate from and that would be almost not the authenticating factor but maybe a gatekeeper. I think we're seeing this larger trend of understanding or doing analytics off of uh, the behaviors of how people are logging in or how they're interacting with their systems. Uh, unusual behaviors ought to be triggered and, uh, and we've seen this and I know uh, there's a number of key services out there and third-party uh, providers that are helping with those analytics. Where that becomes a little more challenging at a federal department level is, again, this proliferation of different devices and how do we bring all those logs so that are we seeing different behaviors across components as opposed to just for one system. And I think that's part of uh, what you're seeing as a broader, a broader trend across the federal government is how do we make sure that that the user behaviors and the security for our data and systems and users are, are at a larger scale. Yeah, so that gets you out of strict logic into more of what at one time they called fuzzy logic, or you need algorithms to understand the correlation between the hard physical pieces and the behavioral characteristics. Absolutely. And it drives more towards the need for us to have strong analytics on our, on our cybersecurity systems. Uh, we're not just collecting logs, but we have to have that strong analytic piece. Sure, and Sean, can you extend that idea to also include the idea that uh, in the case of, well, I lost my thought there, can I start that question over again? Um, oh, yeah, okay, I know where I am. And Sean, can you extend that thought to include the many, many millions of end devices, endpoints, that are not associated with a person, that maybe just sit there? but nevertheless have an IP address. Sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this, this can apply equally to them. Um, you know, we focus more certainly on the user-based um, access, and, and, you know, as Steve pointed out and Paul elegantly pointed out, you know, we're carrying around in our pocket right now these devices that can do a lot of these great things already. I mean, anyone who uses Face ID and Apple Pay realizes that at scale, some of these technologies work really, really well. So I think having that extra factor is really important. You know, Steve mentioned Purebred, which is something the DOD is working on, which is fantastic, and that's kind of the next evolution of CAC. Um, and then beyond that, you need probably another factor because CAC was two-factor, you know, sometimes certificate-based auth, depending on the platform, is not exactly two-factor. So you need something a little stronger that laser, layers on top of that. What might some of those be, those factors? Uh, it depends. So there's no one-size-fits-all. There are all kinds of different use cases. Um, you know, hardware tokens are useful at a higher um, authentication level or authorization level. Um, but something as easily as push technology, which is kind of baked into the platform or GCM on the Google side, baked into the platform already can be used for a lot of those use cases. But in these use cases, I guess the implication is that they invoke themselves. It's not something, some step 
that the user has to do. Now, again, easy, remember? Right. A lot of security, really easy. So you want to make it really easy for the user so they know exactly what they're doing. And, and again, maybe that second factor is even a face ID. Hold your, your device up to your face and you're in. And okay. they don't try to work around it. Yeah, exactly. Craig, thoughts? For uh, the Postal Service, we're at the intersection of leveraging all of these technologies and process management uh, uh, activities in order to be able to uh, provide for the carriers that are on the street to be able to deliver your packages. And for us, how do we get the mobile delivery devices that our carriers use and our uh, vehicles to be able to interoperate together as well as examining the behaviors that our carriers make with these technologies to make sure that it's the right person doing the right thing with the right vehicle so that we can deliver your package at the right time and the right location. So all of those factors of geolocation, uh, as well as all of the technical components from a certificate management perspective across these devices all play a very critical role in being able to uh, predict, authenticate, and assure that we have solid uh, transactions across the country every day. Now, in the case of federal agencies, maybe more so than private sector organizations, you have people on site working, you know, doing work on your behalf that are contractors. Some agencies, there's more contractor employees than federal employees. And they have maybe slightly different access rights, slightly different privileges that their authentication can invoke for them. How do you fine tune these technologies for the different types of people that might be coming in, working in your environment and accessing your systems? Someone want to make a stab at that? <laughs> I can, but I'm not a Fed. Well, you're a former Fed. Okay. Yeah, you're close enough. Um, so, you know, I think the first and foremost is, is um, we're conflating authentication with, with authorization and, and too often um, we give too much access just because somebody authenticated and we've got some pretty serious breaches in, in government to, to, to yeah. prove that. So, you know, I tend to, to live by the authentication should get you nothing and then um, we look at attributes. You can look at context, environmental attributes for, for, for authorization and the problem with that authorization is you're is you're kind of stuck with the platform that you buy and everyone kind of does it differently. Um, and and uh, the standards in the authorization space are, are, are there, but they're still not completely well integrated with um, SaaS, new applications, legacy applications. Um, so that's gonna remain to be a challenge. However, um, and I hate to say this word, but we've also got convergence of, of authentication and authorization, especially on the behavioral side, which is, you know, I can start monitoring and see what the typical behavior is of a given role in an organization, not a person. And then if I see a blip out of that, um, I know that, that somebody in that role, and I know who the person is, is now misbehaving, and I should probably follow up. So that's where this kind of continual authentication behavioral could play a role in, in authorization and, and preventing um, a breach. I think, oh, you go ahead. Oh, well, uh, I think to, to pile on, that's one of our next steps, naturally, is to start looking at, you know, I talked about their physical behavior, but then also I've got a Windows, I've got a, a Windows admin that's suddenly launching a lot of SSH sessions and, and doing a lot of SSHing mm -hmm. around the network. Um, you know, I, I need to be watching the behavior of what they typically do uh, as opposed to what they are actually doing. Um, and then they get deeper into your question about the attributes and that kind of thing. We've always, at, at small scale, uh, things like ABAC and RBAC have worked quite well. The, the challenge becomes at scale or when you try to get finer grain because mm -hmm. a lot of the application owners, they don't trust the attributes. You can prove to them that you have the most up-to-date attribute store that's out there, but a lot of them are not, uh, they're not amenable to, to hanging their hat on the fact that your stuff is up-to-date. They would prefer still to manage an ACL. I'm not saying that's the best method, but in practice, uh, a lot of the application owners are often um, shy when it comes to things like ABAC and, and trusting attributes. That's sort of a risk management uh, issue in some ways. Yes. So, yeah. so I love that Paul said authentication should get you nothing, because that's absolutely correct, right? I and mean, that's whole, the whole concept around this zero trust model, which is just because you get in the front door doesn't mean you're getting access to anything until I prove who you are and you deserve that access. 
The other challenge to that is to continually monitor. So constantly look at that user as they're evolving, as Steve points out, either behaviorally or other ways, to say, are they changing over time? If they're changing, I want to maybe prompt them for other factors, I want to block access. And the balance and the challenge is doing that without being intrusive to the user. Yeah, Ronnie, you had mentioned this kind of behavioral analytics also. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, One of the things that we had talked about is, is this uh, federated, federated approach towards authentication. And one of the things as you're having this discussion is, is that when people are taking a look at the analytics or user behaviors or putting on additional factors to, to look for or enhance their cybersecurity is uh, that that technology and interoperability to federate that type of trust across systems isn't there. So we're essentially building out these frameworks. We have to do it for our own inter organization. And then as we federate authentication, we also have to think about how we're going to allow for this greater trust model. And can all of this uh, good authentication and then authorization as a separate piece, can all of this be uh, separated from, act from legacy application development? In other words, can this type of architecture we've been describing for authentication and now a little bit on authorization, can it apply regardless of the application, which might be 30 years old or it might be developed by U.S. Digital Service last week? So Paul made a really good comment early on about leveraging a lot of those technologies like FIDO up to the perimeter and then inside translating back, right? And I think that's what you were meaning by mm -hmm. that, right? So so we've done that in a number of instances where we have applications that don't support PKI, but I have a, a, a higher level of trust within my own data center and what's going on there. So I use strong authentication to get them to the door and then I might lessen it as we, as we get in. Well, I wish we had another hour, but we don't. And we're gonna leave it with that. Thank you very much to today's guests. Ron Butra is Chief Technology Officer at the Justice Department. Greg Crabb is Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at the U.S. Postal Service. Sean Frazier is Advisory Chief Information Security Officer for Federal at Duo Security. Paul Grassi is Partner and Senior Vice President for Cybersecurity at Easy Dynamics Corporation. And Steve Wallace, Technical Director of the Development and Business Center at the Defense Information Systems Agency. I'm your moderator, Tom Tenen. You've been listening to Federal News Radio 1500 AM. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsradio.com. Use the search term DUO. Thank you for listening to Cyber Authentication and Access Strategies in Government, sponsored by Duo Security on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. The entire program can be found on demand at federalnewsradio.com. Search Duo Security.